0: Welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast, and now your host, Sonia Estrasoltani. Welcome to this new episode of the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. Today, we'll discuss the Vegas shows, what's happening to diamond prices, and the gemstones sold at the recent magnificent auctions that made the headlines and been very much talked about. I am your host, Sonia Estelle editor in chief at Rappaport. To comment on these exciting topics, I have with me today the full team of Rappaport writers. We have Leah Merovic, senior news writer. Hey, nice to be here. Joshua Friedman, our news editor. Nice to be here, Sonia. And Avi Kravitz, our senior analyst. Hello, Sonia.
1: Hello, Leah. Joshua, great to be here.
0: So, we're recording this podcast today in the studio all together. It's getting a little bit emotional. It's a bit of a bittersweet atmosphere for us because today is actually Avi's last day as a full-time employee at Rappaport after 16 years. We'll miss you, Avi, <laughs> as a friend, as a colleague.
1: Well, we'll still be friends, Sonia.
0: Of course, of course we will. And Avi has had a stellar career at Rappaport. He's been covering the diamond industry in print, in podcasts, on webinars, live presentations at conferences all over the world. Is such a well-known figure in the industry and uh, is going to pursue new adventures. We're really excited to follow that from afar and close as well, obviously. And stay tuned with us until the end of this episode because we'll have an interview with Avi. You might know him already. You might have met him at events. He might have spoken to you. But do you really know the real Avi Kravitz?
1: Do I know the real Avi Kravitz? <laughs>
0: <laughs> we'll find out. So stay with us. Try not to get too emotional today. And talking about... Avi Kravitz, big, epic ride. How was Vegas?
1: Yeah, it's been, a, it's been a bit of a whirlwind a few weeks. I spent quite a few days in Vegas. I was there before the show for a few days for some reason. That's my lack of uh, efficient planning. Um, and then, of course, during the show as well. And it's been a while since I've been at the Vegas show. I missed last year's events and it was just so nice to be there. And so there was such a great atmosphere and energy about the shows that's my first takeaway from being in las vegas this year but Cross, the jck show of course couture the antique shows and luxury as well which luxury was a very good show it was just a very positive energy and i guess that's the reason they have it in vegas because you can't be not in a good mood in vegas unless you stay a little too long, then you start to get a bit itchy, as I found out. (laughs) But being in Vegas itself, it was really great. And the main thing about the show is the networking and the seeing old friends and meeting new people in the industry and being exposed to the full gambit of the American market and seeing how it ticks. It was a good reminder That, for me at least, that the American jewelry market is alive and kicking. We know it's been a difficult year off the highs of 2021 and 2022. And certainly within the diamond trade, it's been a struggle this year. It's not an easy environment. But the shows at least demonstrate that there's this massive jewelry market out there in America that's alive and well. And that was the other big takeaway for me from being at the shows. And then from a trading point of view, again, you know, my focus is generally on the diamond trading market, supply-demand prices. And that didn't change, the shows didn't change the diamond industry. Sometimes they do, sometimes these big trade events do change the dynamic of the market. But this year, the JC Show and the diamond trading didn't change the landscape. It's still tough, as I'm sure Joshua will discuss and will discuss later in the podcast. There's still a lot of inventory out there. There's not enough demand. And so you did feel that from a diamond trading point of view. And then the fourth aspect of the show is from a design point of view, which um, we we had this discussion yesterday, Sonia, that I do still struggle a bit with the lingo. It's still new for me after all these years in the industry. But that's also what's so exciting about the jewelry industry is you see these innovative designs and the, the creativity of the industry, which was on full display at the various shows. So it was an exciting week. It really was.
0: You did actually fantastic videos. You interviewed emerging designers that benefited from the National Diamond Council Lauren Schwartz Scholarship. Uh, That's going to be available on Jury Connoisseur YouTube channel. So you'll be able to see Avi doing a great job being a jewelry journalist.
1: Well, shout out to the designers, really. They were so fun to meet. And those six designers, I'm not going to name each individually right now, but as you said, we will be publishing those interviews. And they were such a fun group and such creative and exciting group to get to know and talk to.
0: And what do you think the whole shows give you as a preview of what's happening for the holiday season for the second half of the year? Because from Vegas, that's it. We're already thinking, oh, what all is going to happen for the holiday season? Is it going to be a good year? Is it going to make or break the retail?
1: Yeah, it's, um, I think we can expect more of the same, really. As I said, it's from, a, from a, the diamond trading point of view, we're not expecting a sudden change in the trajectory of the market. And there is a downward trend in polished prices, in the general sentiment of the market. But I think if we look towards the holiday season, well, let me take a step back. That sort of negative tone within the diamond market is being influenced by a few things. And the main thing that's being influenced is the economic caution and uncertainty that we're feeling both in America with the cost of living as higher inflation, rising interest rates etc that's having an effect on middle america the average household their budget is being squeezed and so when that happens the priority is not on discretionary spending not to go out and buy jewelry ahead of those necessity items and so i think we can expect the numbers are down compared to last year and they probably will be down compared to last year for the holiday season but again like i said that american market is so big and so diverse that it still remains sort of the mainstay for the for the global diamond industry. And it's by no means dire. There's still there's still a strong foundation and we're still above pre COVID levels. So that's the encouraging bit.
0: So that's quite good news. Joshua, tell us, have you mentioned the price of polished diamonds. What's happening for you know, from a larger market perspective, what did you see recently that has an impact on pricing?
2: The
3: overall trend, as Avi said, is, is pretty negative. Avi's been tutoring me on how to be more positive about the market. So um, <laughs> I would point out that there is some hope that it will improve. I think one of the the factors, as you mentioned, Avi, is discretionary spending, and particularly in the US has been weaker. Traditionally, even when discretionary spending is weak, the bedrock is still bridal, and that's still that's something that still comes back even when discretionary spending is weak. And one of the things that seems to be happening at the moment is that even engagement ring spending has fallen. And Signet Jewellers put out a report in which they claimed that this is a long-term effect of COVID. That There was less dating during the lockdowns and three years later, or two or three years later, we're kind of seeing the effect of that. There are now fewer engagements and we saw some pretty negative figures from Signet in the first fiscal quarter. But they did also predict a bit of a recovery later in this year or next year. So I think that might be influencing why uh, why well, things are so weak at the moment. And yeah, polish prices have been falling, and all of this has an effect all the way down the industry. So, rough prices have also declined. The beers reduced prices at their site in June, and manufacturers you speak to say they've really been struggling with sales recently. They've been reducing their polish production, but still hopeful that things will improve in the next few months.
1: Sonia, maybe this is a question for you. You know, we talk about the br- bridal being the mainstay of, of the industry, but I'm not sure that's completely true anymore. And I think one of the themes that came through a- in Vegas in a number of discussions was the female self-purchaser. Um, Hooray!
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: absolutely. That, that's really been the driver of growth in the last few years. And And I'm just wondering if that might be a a bit of a lifeline for the industry in a negative market, that there is that sort of sense of rewarding oneself with, you know, buying jewelry. And by the way, there's a a growing trend of men's jewelry as well, that um, men are buying jewelry for themselves also. And so I'm just questioning whether, I mean, of course, bridal is is a big part of the industry, but I'm not sure if it's that bedrock that's really driving the industry as it used to.
0: In the latest Rappaport magazine, the May-June issue that you can find on uh, Rappaport.com, Martin Rappaport interviewed Lisa Bridge of Ben Bridge Drawers, and she said something that is exactly matches what you just mentioned, Evie, that the self-purchase buyer is actually taking over the bridal market, and they notice it as a big retailer. That's what we've noticed as well. If you look at the trends that were At Couture, which, you know, is the show that I've been following the most from afar, I would say bridal is very, very limited, actually. It's really self-purchasing. It's like the cool earrings to go partying. It's the necklace that you stack. It's the beautiful bangles. It's like creating a story on your wrist. It's creating a story on your body of celebrating, you know, events, connection, milestones. And it has nothing to do with bridal which I think is very, very exciting. If you look at most of the designers that were exhibiting, I would think very few were actually bridal designers.
1: Yeah, in fact, you know, I mean, Hearts and Fire put out a new bridal collection and that was like sort of a big, a big move for them. I think it was their first global bridal collection, meaning that they, they're not sort of curating their collections for each individual market which is kind of interesting but apart from that the emphasis at the show as you mentioned you know when you walk the floors of couture and of luxury it's more about fashion and creative design than specifically bridal
0: which is good for the industry. it's good news so joshua i'm also going to take a page from your book usually i'm the one who maybe is over optimistic <laughs> so we try to find our, our happy medium but there was some really good news. This one, I can't lie, from the magnificent auction sales in New York recently. Leah, tell us there were some quite phenomenal stones there.
2: There actually were. And it's a good thing because in the fall auctions last year, there really. Wasn't a whole lot of big items to talk about. And people were really looking forward to the spring auctions bringing a lot more into play. Hong Kong was okay. Geneva was much better. But New York really had a lot to show. In Christie's Magnificent jewels auction, which was on June 7th, their top seller was the Piece of Light Diamond, which is a pear, brilliant cut, 126.76 carat D-color, internally flawless diamond that used to belong to the Zale family. And that diamond actually, part of its what it sold for, which was 13.6 million, went to benefit charities. And it was sold without reserve. So it made a really nice price. But I think really the big sellers were at the Sotheby's New York Magnificent Jewels auction where they had the Estrella de Fura which is a 55.22 carat Mozambique ruby which sold for 34.8 million and it set a world record for the top price for any colored gemstone. That one was estimated at 30 million, more than 30 million, so it beat that estimate. And meanwhile, matching the same price, which is unusual, 34.8 million was the eternal pink, which was a cushion cut, 10.57 carat, fancy, vivid, purplish pink, internally flawless diamond. And that one also set a record for the highest price for any diamond of that color, and also a record per carat price, which was 3.3 million per carat. And it is also the first time that two gems sold for more than 30 million in the same auction. So we hit a lot of records there.
1: Let me ask you, if you had to choose one piece to own from those auctions, which would you choose?
2: Oh, from those three? I probably would go for the Estrella de Fiora Ruby. I
1: would also, I think. I thought it was such a rich color, beautiful.
2: It's gorgeous, yeah. And pink's not my color. (laughs) So now Joshua
0: and I, we have to fight over the pink one because that's the one I would like to take home personally. Okay, I'll take the gavel actually. I thought you were going to go for the white diamond, at least the Zell diamond, I went to charity. Um, it was a good season. It was also a good season in Geneva. You know, we mentioned in a previous episode the big cell, the Holton, Heidi Holton cell did very, very well in spite of the controversy or maybe because of the controversy. And interestingly, actually, Leah, as you know, the new Estrella de Fura is not more expensive than the Sunrise Ruby. Am I correct?
2: It is indeed. Actually, I think the Sunrise Ruby sold for 32.6 <laughs> million and this one was 34.8. It set a new record. I must say, looking at it, it's totally worth it. It is a beautiful gem. If if you haven't looked at it, please read our story on Rappaport.com. There is a nice big picture in the top. You will really love it.
0: Lovely. Thank you so much, Leah. Thanks, Joshua. Now, we have a victim, also known as a guest, called Avi Kravitz, who's not here now anymore, almost, as our senior analyst, but as our dear friend. I was going to carry on contributing to the Rappaport Research Report. You'll see his byline in a magazine as well, and I'm sure we'll do other, other projects as the the years go by, and of course, follow him on all the social media platforms that you can find him, LinkedIn, Instagram. So for the second half of this podcast, we're just going to ask Avi questions. It's going to be quick, fire, and Leah will start asking Avi a question. He doesn't know the questions we're going to ask him. And Avi, please keep your answers quick and fiery.
1: I'll, I'll reserve the right to, to not answer the questions as well. How about that?
0: Oh, you're not allowed. That's not part of the. <laughs> Imagine if our guest said that to us. Don't set a precedent.
2: So I have so many questions, but I think I'm limited here. So, Avi, I want to know, in all of your 16 years, what was your favorite topic that you covered during your time with Rappaport?
1: Sure, that's a tough question. I think initially I was always... Um, fascinated by the rough market and the mining sector. I'm a bit of a data junkie, as many of you know, and I, I can kind of get lost in an Excel sheet. And so the, the mining sector really gave good data and information that helped me understand the market, or at least understand that that had a nice structure that fitted my personality, I think. But over the years, I think I've kind of diversified and I've come to appreciate the design aspect of it, even if I don't speak that lingo so fluently just yet. But generally the analysis always stemmed from the rough market and that mining sector, which I I kind of have a soft spot for.
0: If you could write any story, there's no problem of access, money, time which story would you write about this industry
1: the industry is so so blessed with content and the older i get and the little wiser i get i think the people in the industry have the stories to tell and i think that's what's not explored enough and so i think there there are everyday stories of people who are affected by the industry every day that i think are so i think there's opportunity to explore that sort of rich content that's out there and i think that's where my focus would be if i had that opportunity
3: um wanted to say how much i idolize avi in everything but the literal sense i um my question for you is what is your favorite destination that this job has taken you to
1: It's been a real blessing that I've had the opportunity to travel with the industry and, you know, with the company for the industry. You know, Vegas was always a fun destination for me to, to go to. But I think, you know, Southern Africa is sort of my home, you know, it's where I grew up. And so when I would go to Southern Africa and meet the industry there, it was always... A bit more personal than other destinations, but I think my favourite destination that I've got to, that I've been exposed to and got to know, has been India. And I look forward to exploring India as a country and as a culture on a broader scale. That's something that I, I haven't done yet. It's always been very industry specific, but there's again, there's so much to, there's so much colour and richness there that I find just walking the streets that I always found um, just so fascinating and um, um, always loved visiting India and I would come home exhausted needing a vacation. It's definitely a destination that I um, that I look forward to exploring more of.
2: So Avi, is there any story that's come in over the last 16 years that completely shocked you?
1: Wow, there have been a few that we've as a team had a good laugh about. I don't know if... I want to mention any of them. It's a family show, this. <laughs> I tell you, I, th- I think, you know, the, the latest round, mm-hmm. you know, to look at it on a more serious market related with the Russia-Ukraine war and the imp- and having El Rosa, which is such an important producer and that we've developed relationships with the people in El Rosa and to have they have Russian goods off the market. I remember, you know, I, th- I think it was a few years back during the Crimea war, there was an initial um, sort of tension between Russia and Ukraine. And there was a hint that El Rosa would be sanctioned. And I thought to myself, wow, that's radical. That's completely, how could that happen? And it didn't happen at the time and then now that it has happened i think it's really something that's uh, it's not that it's shocking it's just really shocked the market to an extent that i don't think we all have fully understood yet And so I would rank that somewhere along, you know, among those stories. But the kind of the beauty of this industry and the job that we do, when I tell people that I'm a journalist covering the diamond industry, they always look at me and immediately ask the question, like, wow, do you have what to write every day? Are you busy? And I say to them, you have no idea the scope of the diamond industry and the diversity of topic that we cover. And that's very special. It's such a unique and fun industry to cover. It's, uh, you know, I think we can really be, you know, count ourselves lucky in that sense. Am I keeping it brief enough?
0: Not really, but that's okay. you you you're okay not playing bad rules today, have you? <laughs> Actually, on this note, it's, um, I wanted to ask you, have you ever been disappointed in the industry in 16 years? Because I know your passion, I think we all feel it, we all know it. People who've been listening to you for years know it and know you. But has there has been one moment where you've been disappointed?
1: Wow, you journalists really ask the tough questions, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Again, referring back to the Russia crisis, a year, just over a year ago, the industry was... I think, a little slow in responding. It's difficult to say if I was disappointed in the industry at any point. It's an industry that's faced reputational risk for so long. And so I always felt that, you know, being within the trade and covering it and seeing, sort of being, in a way, part of the discussion that takes place to deal with these reputational issues, you kind of feel that you want to tell people that the industry is trying, that it's that that there is efforts to deal with these issues. And so there's always more that can be done. I also don't want to say, no, I've never been disappointed in the industry because I'm also, I'm a journalist and I try my best to look at it from an objective point of view. But it's a tough question to answer in terms of specifics. I think the industry can be overly cautious in dealing with those issues. And so maybe there is some risk taking to take it a little to the, the harder line in preventing those reputational things. I will say this, I think, you know, I, I have had the pleasure or challenge of attending a Kimberley process meeting or two, and that is a frustrating experience. And I think that lack of progress in the Kimberley process, which for a long time was a poster child for the industries dealing with these conflict diamond, human rights issues, or whatever, that has, I think, overall, you know, it's a frustrating process that's lost its relevancy and maybe that's that is disappointing
3: it's a classic question but there's a reason why it's a classic question if you could go about 16 years and give yourself give your 16 years younger self some advice what would it be
1: i guess this is my little message to my beloved colleagues that if you have the opportunity to engage with the industry in person you should take that opportunity as much as possible because that's where the that's where the life is it's very easy to get stuck behind our laptops behind our screens and sort of work through the news that comes in but when you get a chance to meet the people and see the product and and enjoy the dynamic of the industry it's just it's a drug it's, it just gives you a new lease on life so if If I had to, I would say that if I had to go back 16 years and give myself that advice, I would definitely say just maybe don't take it so seriously and enjoy the wonderful things that the job has to offer.
0: I'm quite enjoying this uh, interviewing thing with Avi. It's a good guest. We might have you back on the podcast. (laughs) Keep your diary. I know your diary is going to be busy, but just keep a slot for us.
1: I'll check my diary.
2: (laughs) So aside from some well-deserved sleep, what is the first thing that you're going to do in your new life?
1: So I'm planning to travel. I'm going to be spending quite a bit of time in South Africa. Um, my family is there. I'm pining for my family and I'm looking forward to seeing to seeing them. So I'm going to be spending a few months in South Africa, in Southern Africa and traveling around a bit. And I'll still be as I sort of lay the foundation for my freelance work and various other projects that I'm hoping to embark on and um, you will hear about them soon so stay posted but my initial move will be to spend a few months abroad back in SA
2: Sounds nice I'm expecting a bunch of pictures please
1: (laughs) Follow me on Instagram Leia. Follow me on Instagram
0: (laughs) I'm asking the last question for me Are you planning to be on TikTok?
1: Well, I actually am on TikTok. I've been posting our market comment videos when I remember to on TikTok. And so I'm trying to figure out how much I've still got to learn on social media. The added benefits of TikTok over Instagram reels. And maybe that's a whole other discussion that some other podcast guests can explain. <laughs> but I am I am there and I enjoy video. I enjoy, I've come to enjoy the presentation elements of the job, let's say. And that's, again, a skill set that I was lucky enough to learn at Rappaport. And, and so that's, that is something that I enjoy doing. And we'll see if uh, TikTok's the the outlet for it for me.
0: So I have to add LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok to follow Javi Kravitz. And Joshua is going to get the last question.
3: What can you remember about your first day at Rappaport?
1: Well, it's kind of come. Full circle, because my first day at Rapport, I was working at home, actually. I was living in Jerusalem, and Rapport didn't have an office in Jerusalem except Martin's house. And I was also working with an editor, Jeff Miller, shout out to him if he's listening. He was in New York, so there was this sort of time difference. But I do remember very clearly my interview at Rapport and meeting Martin for the first time. I think his two sons were there and a few others who were working in his team, and he had just got back from new york i think and arrived back in israel and i arrived for an interview with him and he was full of energy and just talking 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 as he does and telling me about the company and i had no idea his position in the market i had no idea what the company's role in the industry was for me it was just sort of a journalistic job that became available and someone sort of suggested i look into And Martin started talking about the industry and he was a bit jet lagged and he sort of nodded off and fell asleep once or twice during the interview, but woke up and continued where he left off explaining what's going on. And and I was, I remember a little taken back thinking, wow, this is a company that's kind of eccentric and interesting and it's an industry that's eccentric and interesting. And so maybe I might be a good fit for it. And I think that gut feel was correct. I um, I love the industry. I love our company. I feel very blessed to have worked for Appleport for so long. And I'm gonna continue to contribute as Sonia mentioned, you know, on a freelance basis. But I do, you know, it was a very personal decision that I needed to make to spice things up in my own eccentric life. And so that's the idea. I'm looking forward to continuing my journey in a different, a little bit of a different path, but maintaining that strong relationship that that we all have. I've loved working with each of you, really, and also those who preceded you. (laughs) <laughs> I was always kind of the old man in the group over here but um, it's really been such a wild journey and so blessed to have had it so thank you all for being so wonderful
0: thank you so much Abby. I think that was a fantastic interview we all enjoyed it we all enjoy working with you Thanks, Leah and Joshua, for your insights on this podcast. And if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, please don't worry. Avi is leaving us, but this podcast will carry on every other week, hosted by either Joshua, Leah, or me, or we'll have other hosts as well, obviously other guests. Avi was a great one, but we'll have other people from the industry that we love quizzing and learning from. Subscribe to this podcast on all the good platforms that you know. Always on user of and that's my shameless plugging as Avi would say, for our products. But carry on, please, joining us to learn more about this industry that Avi describes so well as an eccentric and interesting industry. Thanks, Leah, for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me. And Avi, you'll be very much missed on the team.
1: Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Joshua.
3: Thank you, Sonia. Thank you, Leah. And thank you, Avi. We'll greatly miss you. And you are a
1: great interview. Thank you, Avi. Thank you. You're a great interviewer, Joshua.
0: And thank you so much, Avi Kravitz. You know we love you so much and we'll miss you a lot.
1: Absolutely. Thank you all. Appreciate it.
0: And thanks to our wonderful producer as well, Vanina, who's been making this happen, podcast after podcast. We have this amazing team behind the scenes as well that, you know, we might be speaking and speaking and you might see the bylines of uh, some of us, but that's really a big, big wrap-up behind the scene team that always makes things happen, all these products. So thanks to them as well. And a parting word of wisdom, Avi Kravitz.
1: I'm looking forward to hearing what you guys have in store next. This podcast is only going to grow and get better. So, um, stay listening everyone and, um, stay tuned.
3: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. For more discussions, news and analysis about the diamond industry, visit us at Rappaport.com. Follow Rappaport group on Instagram and follow Rappaport on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And don't forget to subscribe to get future episodes.